energy. The guy told me I was no spring chicken anymore, and that's why my ankle was still hurting. I'm 33, not 133. The passion. The Red Sox handling of Xander Bogarts is a complete organizational failure. The opinions on all your favorite teams. No, not this year, but it's next year where Bill Belichick ends up on the hot seat. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show back at it here on a Thursday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEBradio.com. Just two days away from Christmas Eve, just two days away from the Patriots taking on the Bengals on this station. Lots to get to. We're up until 7 o'clock, all 90 minutes. Then we'll have Jazz with George Thomas. Buster Olney of ESPN is going to stop by in about 15 minutes, talk some baseball. I've got some more observations from UVM Hoops from Tuesday against Toledo and a couple questions as well. And a former Patriot calls out Mac Jones. We'll tell you what that's all about too. You can get in on the Napa Morrisville Napa Waterbury text line at 802-585-3026. It's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. And uh, you can 585-3026. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts in the Brady Farkas show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Now, the Patriots have three games left here in the regular season, and obviously they still mathematically have a chance at the playoffs, but that's for this year. With regards to the future of the Patriots, Former Patriots quarterback Scott Zolak says Mac Jones is under a lot of pressure these last three weeks. I think it's sneaky three big games, sneakier than people think, like big games these next three. Not for obvious reasons for playoffs, but if you're not in the playoffs, big picture, like do you really want a three-game skid and bad play by the quarterback going into this offseason? Because it will be the topic. I think he needs to play well, and whatever's playing well is protect the football, hit around 70%, two touchdowns, no picks. If he doesn't, then there's talk of, next year's year three, and, you know, you need to make a decision on a quarterback. We might have to start making it now. I actually think that's fair. At first, I thought maybe it was hyperbole. Ah, that's just Zoe eh, being a little too rough. You know what? I think it's fair. And actually, I'm going to go a step further. I think these last three games of the regular season are big for the entire operation for the Patriots because if they don't go well, that I think everybody is under the microscope in the offseason and subsequently heading in to year three. Mac Jones, Bill Belichick. I think the big figures in the Patriots organization are under a big-time microscope heading into next year if these last three games don't well go well. If the Patriots go 0-3 and, and finish 7-10, and finish and 10. if they go 1-2 and, and finish 8-9, and nine, I think there is going to be a real hard look taken by Robert Kraft at the state of this organization. Now, I believe that Mac Jones is going to be the starter heading into year three of his career. Next year already, I believe Mac Jones is going to be the starter. The organization is not going to be in a position to draft one of the top quarterbacks because they're not going to finish bad enough to be inside the top five. 
I don't think they're going to be able to sign or trade for someone appreciably better and better value than Mac Jones would be, you know, would be able to provide next year. So I believe Mac clearly has the inside track right now at being the starter next year. But if these three games don't don't go well, to Zoe's point, I think everyone is under the microscope. You heard it there in my intro that I think next year Bill Belichick becomes on the hot seat. Well, if these three games don't go well, Bill Belichick and Mac Jones are on the hot seat. And obviously the entire offensive coaching situation is already under the microscope. If things get worse or things stay bad, then that becomes under an even bigger microscope this offseason as well. Now, I expect there to be change in how the Patriots handle the offense. I do not think that the Matt Patricia, Joe Judge, Bill Belichick triumvirate is going to be calling plays and handling things in 2023. But Bill Belichick is going to be under the microscope for how he handles that situation. He's going to be under the microscope for how he handles free agency and for how he handles the money and for how he handles the draft. So Bill Belichick, if these last three games don't go well, he's really ratcheting up the pressure on himself. Offensive coaching situation will matter. Draft will matter. Finances will matter. Free agency will matter. Bill Belichick, if it doesn't go well, he will be under review from Robert Kraft, and that's why I believe subsequently he will enter next season with at least some question about his job security. And Mac Jones will be under the microscope too because with what Zoe said, you're heading into year three next year. And when you head into year three, we are starting to think about contracts and we are starting to think about big money, right? In year three, you start to figure out, is this a guy we want to pay in the not-too-distant future 40 to $50 million a year or are you a guy that we want to start to pivot away from? Those thoughts will happen in year three. Those questions will happen in year three. You will see guys from Mac Jones's draft class get extensions after year three, right? Trevor Lawrence will probably get an extension after year three. Justin Fields likely could get an extension after year three. You will see quarterbacks do that. And for the ones that don't get those extensions, there are real questions about, a la Baker Mayfield, a la Daniel Jones, right? Like this is, Mac Jones, I think Zoe is right. Because when you're in year three, you are in total evaluation mode as far as contracts in the future go. I, I do not think this is hyperbole. If if the Patriots lose all three games, but Mac plays well and he's not the reason they lose, then I think he staves off some questions. But if he if if he looks bad and they look bad as a result of it, then yeah, those questions are going to be loud. They are going to be loud. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury, text line 802-585-3026. Mateo in Chester. Brady, you said yesterday that Mac Jones is a quarterback who needs structure and that right now he doesn't have it. Do you really think the next three games matter that much as long as they provide him structure next year? Like, can't they just write off his struggles as the craziness of this season? It's a good question, Mateo. It's a good question. I think you can, if you're Robert Kraft, I think you can justify Max struggles this year. And I think that's what guarantees him the inside track heading into next season, right? I think Robert Kraft can look at it and say, the kid was injured. We didn't put the kid in a great situation. 
We whiffed on some things in our previous off seasons. I, I do think you can explain away, if you want to, some of Mac Jones' struggles. So I believe that Robert Kraft will look at it and say, we didn't give him a fighting shot, and that's what will earn him his opportunity in year three heading into camp. But then you need to, in that important year three, you need to work towards getting a final judgment, and you better be giving Mac Jones all the chances to succeed in year three. Right, I can explain away his failures of this year by virtue of the situation, but next year, in the kind of almost make or break year, I better give him all he can succeed with to see if me explaining it away was right or not. You know what I mean? I'm gonna write him I'm gonna write him an excuse book for this year. Next year. I better give him some advantageous circumstances. So next year, there are no excuses. Next year, we just get the answer, right? I need to be better in free agency. I need to be good in the draft. I need to have a better offensive line, a better coaching situation. I need to do a lot for Mac Jones. I've said a lot of quarterbacks require a cushy situation. I need to give Mac that cushy situation because if I give it to him and he still can't succeed, then it's on him, and then I am pivoting away. If I don't give Mac a cushy situation, then I'm left wondering more, well, is it Mac's bad or is it that we're not doing enough? Right? You look around the league and you'll see, okay, I think Jared Goff could be pretty good with a good situation. Right? So you see him in a good situation right now with Detroit and he's playing well. Baker Mayfield? They've determined he cannot play well without a good situation. They've determined that Carson Wentz, in a lot of cases, cannot play well with a good situation. You've got to give Mac a good situation so you can get him the answers, right? So you can give him the answers or so you can get the answers. Explain away this year all you want, but next year you cannot leave it up to any doubt. You need to give him the pieces so we can get a real um, get a real sense of how good he is. Text says from Ross, Patriots fail year after year getting a great and protective offensive line. I disagree with that. Patriots offensive line last year was pretty good. It was part of the reason why Mac was so good. Right? Patriots were able to run the ball last year, help Mac Jones out. Patriots were able to protect Mac Jones last year. I, I disagree with that. You look last year, we talked about this yesterday. Shaq Mason started 15 games last season, I think. Isaiah Wynn started 13 or something like that. David Andrews played all 17. Ted Karras played 13. I mean, last year's offensive line was largely intact, largely healthy, and it helped absolutely aid what Mac Jones did last season. They ran the ball well. He didn't get hit as much. This year, the offensive line has been poor. Guys have been injured. The running game has been great at times, but there's been some injuries here late, especially to Damian Harris, and that's kind of whittled away at what they want to do there. Um, the, the situation for Mac this year is not as good. Next year, you've got to build him that good situation. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, we talked a lot yesterday about Major League Baseball, and we talked a lot yesterday about Steve Cohen, the owner of the New York Mets and whether or not he was good or bad for the game or good or bad for fans. 
I want to go out now to the phone line and ask that question of Buster Olney, our ESPN MLB insider. All the insight into everything going on in baseball. It's time for our weekly conversation with ESPN Baseball Insider and Vermont native, Buster Olney. I'm just about ready to bet the family farm in Vermont. On the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, pre-holiday editions of the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM at WDEVradio.com. And joining us now is the aforementioned Buster Olney, our ESPN MLB insider. Buster, thank you for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy holidays, Brady. Yes, happy holidays to you. It was interesting that yesterday morning you were on the ESPN Radio Morning Show, right? You were on uh, Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max. But filling in for those yep. guys were Freddie Coleman and Courtney Cronin. And Freddie's on our show every Wednesday. And on that show yesterday on national television, he was rocking a Brady Farkas show sweatshirt. Now, Buster, you were not on with us every week at the time we had those sweatshirts made, but what would I have to do to get you in a Brady Farkas show sweatshirt on national TV in the future? <laughs> I, I'm very open to the idea, uh, certainly on my podcast, but Freddie being on the show every day, uh, you know, on, on, a, on a radio show every day that, that uh, televised, that would help. I don't think that my bosses would be thrilled if my next sports center hit <laughs> that I had a, a Brady Farkas show uh, t- or sweatshirt on. I, I will tell you that. I think they would prefer the coat and tie. And on Sunday Night Baseball, I'm thinking that Carl Rabbit's the, the play-by-play man, he wouldn't be happy with that either. But we'll we'll try to thread a needle at some point for you. Well, how about this? How about a a spring training <laughs> a spring training hit early in spring training, Florida in February, <laughs> where we just get a picture of you talking with some big leaguer in one? Well, something like that. I, I could definitely see something like that. And you know what? I should uh, look for uh, some connection with Vermont, uh, some player from Vermont or, or somebody who's got Vermont roots. Maybe Ernie Johnson will be down in spring training uh, with uh, you know his connection with his dad. Um, that would be fun. Well, like I told you, now you don't get out to Arizona, I know, during spring training much, but uh, Cal Raleigh, Mariners catcher, his dad, Todd Swanton, uh, Vermont Missisquoi High School legend. There you go. There's the in. And you know what? Uh, I am actually, because now I live in Montana. Oh, that's right. Uh, I'm actually going to be out, I believe, in uh, in Arizona to start. So, uh, you know, that, that that's very possible. All right. And, well, uh, it'll be interesting. You know, I've told you my story about uh, Derek Barton, yeah. who was born in Vermont. Uh, and when I walked up to him and I mentioned that, hey, I'm from Vermont, and, and you were born there. And he looked at me like I was the biggest idiot, and he couldn't care less. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but I Cal Raleigh, based on what I've heard about his personality, he would uh, he would embrace the conversation more. All right. Well, we'll do what we can to, to get another sweatshirt run and get you on by uh, by spring training. Hey, you mentioned living Great. in Montana. Are you? How much overtime is your heat working right now? How cold is it? It is as you and I speak. It's minus thirty six, oh. uh, and it is wind chill factor uh, below minus fifty. It actually looks like it's going to be a spectacular morning. Uh, but this morning, I, I uh, texted my siblings who are all who all live in Vermont, and I said it's minus thirty six here today. Uh, we're all safe, we're all warm, and this is coming your way. And I got thumbs up from all three of them. I mean, it's crazy. Like it's one thing if it's just you, but you have dogs and animals. How do you even function with the animals outside in this? <laughs> um, well, we have a puppy who's uh, almost a year old. 
and she loves to play ball, and I haven't been taking her out. This morning when I let her out, uh, she went and, and did her business and raced back to the door like, what? What is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> so she came back, and my older dog, who's 12, she's a veteran. So like she, she, uh, she, she was much more patient with it than the puppy was. The puppy was like, you know, who turned off the heat? Yeah. Oh, man, I can't even imagine. We are going to get some nastiness uh, tomorrow and Saturday, but not minus 36. My goodness. Buster Olney of ESPN joining us here on the Brady Farkas Show, our pre-holiday editions of the Brady Farkas Show. All right, Buster, let's get to the baseball matters at hand. And let's start with Steve Cohen and let's start with the Mets. And this is where I was at yesterday. I, I'm not – I mean, I'm dumb sometimes, but I'm not dumb in this regard, I don't think. I recognize that Steve Cohen is good for players – and he's probably good to spur some other teams into action, right? You know, the Yankees will be spurred into action by the Mets because they got to win the back page. The Phillies are in the division. They've already been spurred into action. The Red Sox, in theory, is a big market team, should be spurred into action. So there is good here. But largely, I think most fans would think Steve Cohen is bad for baseball because their team owners are either unable or unwilling to go to these levels, and we're going to see the gap continue to widen. I know you think Steve Cohen is great for baseball, so tell me why I'm wrong. And look, I think your concerns are, are legitimate. You know, the, the 1994-95 strike uh, that the players went on was built on an argument between big market and small market teams where the big, the small market teams were upset. They felt like that they couldn't continue the trajectory of spending. Uh, they asked the players effectively to, to fund an adjustment, and it was an impasse, and we lost the World Series. And there is already fear within the industry that, boy, you know, the, the next labor fight could be ugly if these small market teams band together. And not only small market teams might band together, but there also might be more teams working in concert to curb this type of spending like we're seeing with Steve Cohn. But I, I go back to conversations that I had with Billy Bean uh, you know, in, the, in the 2000s about the Yankees and about the way uh, you know, that, that they were sort of the evil empire. And, and Billy found himself at times in conversation with Oakland Athletics fans who would complain about the Yankees spending and say, the Yankees are great for baseball. Like, they're the... You know, they're, they're the team that, uh, you know, becomes public enemy number one. And when they go to Oakland, if they go to other ballparks, uh, people go to, to pay and, 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 and they will boo them. And they will draw a lot of attention. When the, we got news yesterday that Carlos Correa, uh, you know, had overnight had flipped and gone from his agreement, uh, you know, being blown up with the Giants to then going to the Mets and the Mets having a payroll of close to $400 million dollars. You know, I tweeted out, we've got the Mets and Giants on Sunday Night Baseball on April 23rd. And there was a big response to that. And next year, you know, is, is one uh, baseball executive said to me, you know, the Mets are going to be like the Chicago Bull, Michael Jordan teams, where everyone's going to be, you know, must watch. And you know and I know that uh, money doesn't directly translate into championships in baseball. No teams have spent more in the last two decades than the Dodgers and Yankees. They have two championships in 22 years between them. So uh, that there's going to be a ton of interest in the Mets, a ton of people rooting against the Mets, and that's a good thing. And Billy also understood not only the other teams playing in their, uh, you know, behind a team like the Mets in terms of making money, but I do think it's good that clubs like the Red Sox, you know, they're going to sound, whatever John Henry says in spring training is going to sound ridiculous to some degree, 
this fans clamor for for that the Red Sox to step up and pay a you know a Rafael Devers at this point they're going to sound ridiculous if they don't step up and do it and I think in some ways what Steve's doing is creating a higher bar for big market clubs like the Red Sox and quite frankly like the Yankees who I think stepped up uh, you know they're spending with Aaron Judge after you know the, with the specter of Steve Cohen out there as much as he is you know buster the the you know i got into it with a mets fan on social media the other day and they said well you know what your owner could do it too everyone's owner could do this ours is just no. doing it and i'm curious that's not true is it like yes small market no. teams can spend more but not everybody can spend this no I, and i agree with that um and i do think that they're you know i think steve cohen looks at it from a fan's perspective and while you know major league baseball is a private business so all these owners uh, have you know, the ability to conduct their business as they see fit. I do think there is uh, a sense of public trust. There's an element of, of this being each major league team being a public trust. And so that's why I get offended when I see, uh, you know, teams run their clubs purely for, pro- for profit and tanking. You know, we're seeing the Baltimore Orioles in recent years not spending money. And it's all about the owner drawing profits out of the team while pretending to, um, you know, while pretending to compete. And so I think what Steve is doing and what Peter Seidler of the Padres is doing with his, you know, massive increase in spending is reminding, uh, you know, other owners, look, it's more about just doing well on the bottom line, you know, and, and understanding that when you have franchise values in the, somewhere in the range of three or $4 billion dollars, yeah, you can add that extra starting pitcher to try to win as you uh, as you sell your your product to the to local fans. Buster Olney, ESPN MLB Insider, with us here in the Brady Farkas Show every Thursday on WDEV AM and FM. You know, I, I don't know how it's going to happen yet, but I feel like the Mets are going to be really bad for the Red Sox when it comes to Rafael Devers because either yeah, yeah because either. No Devers just goes to the market and says, well, look, I'm not taking anything you offer because I know the Mets are out there. That that would be bad. Two, the Mets are going to go after Otani, I'm sure, and if they get him, it'll be a ridiculous price, and that will drive up the price for the next best free agent, Devers, which will be bad. Or they'll just not get Otani and then pivot to Devers, and they'll just go get him themselves. I feel like I don't know how it's going to play out, but this is bad news for the Red Sox. It's terrible news for the Red Sox, uh, especially with their, their current – you know, modus operandi and their current, you know, order of business and how they're connecting uh, or how they're conducting business. Um, look, and here's the other factor that sort of hasn't got as much attention in a week in which the Mets are pushing their payroll close to $400 million. The Los Angeles Dodgers clearly are resetting their payroll for a big run next winter at Shohei Otani. Um, that's the perception of other teams. You know, they've given one-year deals to guys like J.D. Martinez. Uh, and, you know, the, the feeling is, is that next winter, when Otani becomes a free agent, assuming he becomes a free agent, the Dodgers are going to take a huge run at him. Well, guess what? What happens if Otani decides, you know what, I want to take the Mets' money. Uh, I want to go after, you know, take, take the bigger deal that uh, Steve Cohen might offer me. Or maybe the Giants step up. They have a ton of payroll flexibility, as we've talked about. Maybe your Mariners step up in their team. Well, guess what? If that all happens, if the Dodgers don't sign Otani, guess who potentially would be number two on the list? And that would be Rafael Devers. Uh, and that would, again, be horrible news for the Red Sox 
you and I have talked about how I, I can't remember many examples of a player having this kind of leverage against their teams. You're talking about a player who's going to be a free agent right after his 26th or 27th birthday uh, and to go into a market which is going to be relatively thin and to have big market teams like the Dodgers and the Mets all lined up, ready to spend big. I, I just look. This is, it's why today or sometime in, in January or, or February the Red Sox need to go to Devers with a blank check. That's the position mm-hmm. they put themselves in. And if they don't, they better start preparing for a trade uh, of Devers because I, I just can't see a way unless they completely surrender in these negotiations given the market dynamics, that they're actually going to be able to sign him. Buster, last question here before we let you go. Um, I actually think the Red Sox have done a lot of good this offseason. You know, the bullpen has improved. I think the the Justin Turner move is is at least equal to J.D. Martinez. I think it's an adequate replacement. Now, all of this good is overshadowed by the Bogarts loss and the impending Devers doom, and I understand that. But uh, what would you think of the, uh, of the Turner acquisition and how he fits with the Sox? Yeah, I mean, I think it potentially makes sense. It's clear that from June 30th on, he found something in his swing. He made an adjustment. Um, he hit close to 350. He's a great professional. He's a great clubhouse guy. And in a vacuum, yes, that helps. In a vacuum, getting a, an established closer like Henley Jameson helps. But those are, uh, you know, those are temporary rentals. It's the difference between the Red Sox, you know, renting an apartment and actually buying a house and, and, and something around to construct their team. Uh, and it does strike me that all that the moves they're made this winter will allow them to quickly pivot if they go into mm-hmm. sell mode. And I think you and I agree on this. Their margin for error with their roster compared to that of the Yankees with Rodon now and Judge resigned, or the Blue Jays or the Rays or the Orioles with their improving roster, there's a fair chance we're going to see the Red Sox go into sell mode. And I think that was part of the reason why they won these one- and two-year deals. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I think you're right about the margin of error. Like, it's one of these, if, if, if everything goes all right, then they got a chance. But you and I know, 162-game season, not everything goes right. And you're counting on a lot of, you know, Kike to bounce back and Trevor Story to bounce back and Chris Sale to stay healthy and Paxton. And and those things are just, you can't bank on them. No, you nailed it. It feels like there's there's not that much depth and there's very little margin for error. Buster only. ESPN MLB Insider Buster, stay warm. Have a great holiday. We appreciate everything you've done for us in 2022. I am off next week, so uh, we got some college football bowl games on the air, so uh, enjoy a, a week from my early morning phone calls, and uh, we'll talk in two weeks after the new year. Yeah, and the next time I talk to you, I'll actually be, uh, you know, I believe in Vermont, so uh, that'll be fun. That will be fun. Buster only in Vermont. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, Buster's going to get a break from my phone calls next week. I always call Buster in the morning and ask him, you know, hey, here's what we're going to talk about. He's so good. I'm confirming all that. But uh, Buster in Vermont, maybe get Buster in studio. That would be the goal. So the uh, full interview with Buster only will soon be posted on our podcast uh, channel there at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Buster was awesome. I want to get to a lot of what he said in the 6 o'clock hour, but I want to answer this text now from Dane in Rochester. Pretty interesting. Brady, is this spending spree uh, by these teams, the Padres, Mets, Dodgers, sustainable? None of these players that have received 10-plus year contracts will be the same level of player then as they are now. Dane, it depends. I I know what you're asking, but it's a little more nuanced than that. On the surface, 
No, these long-term deals are not going to end up great for teams, right? Like Xander Bogarts, Carlos Correa, Aaron Judge, they're not going to be as good at 38 as they are at 30. They're not going to be as good at 41 as they are at 33. So these deals are going to look bad at some point. But you know what? If you win a World Series or two, then it doesn't really matter. If you win a World Series or two, aren't you as a fan willing to eat a couple of bad years on the end of it? Like, the Padres massively overpaid Xander Bogarts. I would think you're hoping for, out of, out of 11 years, three great years, four pretty good ones, and then the last four you're willing to eat. If you win two World Series, though, in that seven-year period where he's good to great, I, I think you would take that if you're the Padres. And if you're a Padres fan, you'd probably take it too. If you're the Padres revenue-wise, like, hey, if we win two World Series, how much extra money are we going to bring in so we can handle and stomach this contract that turns bad? And, oh, by the way, in 10 years when Xander Bogarts is still on the roster, his contract might not be that big in comparison to the rest of the league. So uh, the contracts won't look good, but if you win, I don't think it matters. Conversely, I do think that signing your really young players to really early mega deals, those will hold up. right? The Mariners have Julio Rodriguez to 21 years old. They've got him signed for like at least 14 years if they want. He'll be really good still at 35. They've got the entirety of his prime there. Wander Franco for the race, getting signed at you know 21 for a 14-year deal. Fernando Tatis Jr., now steroids, PEDs notwithstanding, those deals, signing young mega stars, those will hold up because those players will still be really good. Brady Farkas Show. Be right back at it after CBS News. We'll talk about more UVM hoops, things I noticed, questions I have. Line at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV AM and FM at WDEVradio.com. We're up until 7 o'clock, and then it's Jazz with George Thomas taking over from 7 until 9. You can always subscribe to the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. You get all of our full interviews as well as all of our full shows as well. I want to make a few other observations about UVM men's basketball. And I talked a lot yesterday about the Catamounts after their loss to Toledo from Tuesday at Patrick Jim. And there's a few other comments that I want to make. Number one, I owe Robin Duncan an apology. I was never mean to Robin Duncan. We've had him on this show. I like Robin Duncan. I never said that Robin Duncan was bad, but I haven't appreciated Robin Duncan as much as I should. Robin Duncan is the heart and soul of this team, and I have not given him enough credit previously for all he does and all he can do. So I owe Robin Duncan an apology. Against Toledo, he had 10 points, he had 7 rebounds, he had 4 assists, he was every bit the on-court leader of this team and every bit the emotional leader of this team. He scored in double figures, which was huge. He led the team in rebounding. He led the team in assists. He attacked the basket when nobody else would. We talked yesterday about UVM's offense being a lot of standing around waiting for jump shots. In the second half, Robin Duncan is the guy who said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to take it to the rack. 
And he did that. And he scored a couple of times, and he got fouled a couple of times, and I'm sure he opened something something else up for somebody else on the perimeter as a result of him getting to the basket. Robin Duncan is the leader of this team. And look, I will admit this. I am guilty of this. I fall into a very offensive-minded trap sometimes. I want to see people score. And I've always thought that at low major levels, your best players should be able to score. I need to do a better job at not wrapping up a player's usefulness into just how much they can put the ball through the hoop. Robin Duncan had 10 against Toledo. He's not going to do that every game. That's not his game. I'd love for it to be. I'd love for him to get 10 points and 7 rebounds every game. It's not going to happen. That's just not who he is. But he brings so much to the table to this team that I see now that I am okay with him not being a scoring machine. Again, I owe him that apology. Robin Duncan is a guy who started at point guard last year, and now this year he is your leading rebounder. Seven rebounds on Tuesday. He also had four assists, which again, led the team. He led the team in both those categories. He led the team in minutes played. He is invaluable to this team. He rallies the crowd. He went to the bucket. He he was willing to get into it with the Toledo guys. He got a technical, which, again, we don't love necessarily, but he wasn't backing down. He's the leader of this team, and he deserves to be recognized as such. There's a reason why he played 38 minutes the other day. They can't afford to not have him on the floor. They cannot have him. They can't afford to not have him on the floor. And I do acknowledge this. While I'm admitting being wrong about Robin Duncan, I do think some of my previous questions about him had been fair, right? Like, he had never been asked to play this way before. So I didn't necessarily know that he had all of this in him, and we're seeing it now. I judged him last year by just could he score, and he really didn't. Well, now this year, as he's been asked to do more, he's showing capable of it. I give him a lot of credit for that. It's not easy to go from being point guard to now having to play point center and get and lead the team in rebounding. It's not easy to do that. He's doing it, and he deserves credit for it. Number two on my UVM basketball observations, and again, the Cats will play Miami on the 28th, and then we'll get into conference play finally. My number two observation. I'll be honest. I'm not sure yet how to judge Dylan Penn. We're 15 games into the season almost, and I can't quite figure Dylan Penn out. And by 15 games into the season, I feel like I should have a better read on him, and it's just not there for me. I I just can't formulate what exactly I think he is, what exactly I think he should be. On one hand, he doesn't feel as impactful to me as I want him to. I think that Dylan Penn is a guy with an offensive skill set that he has the potential to fully take over a game. But Dylan Penn doesn't really take over games. He also isn't on the floor as much as I think your best player should be. Robin Duncan's playing 38 minutes. Dylan Penn played 25 the other day. 
I'm kind of, I came in with such high expectations for Dylan Penn that I'm kind of waiting for him to turn into Superman and be the presumed conference player of the year. And I just haven't seen that. But on the flip side, Dylan Penn had 20 points the other day. He had a game-high 20 points. For as good as Toledo was, Dylan Penn outscored everybody individually. He shot 50% plus from the floor. He hit a couple of threes. He got to the line a couple of times. He's second on this team in scoring per game. So it's not like he's not getting points. He's just not taking over in the way that I want him to. So it feels weird to me. I have an expectation that he should be the man and the ball should flow through him and he should demand the ball and he should put the team on his back. That's the expectation that I had. We're not getting that. But he scored 27 against Cal State Fullerton. He scored 20 against Toledo. Against really good teams in bigger conferences, he stepped up and he has been your best player. He's just doing it in a different way. I looked up the other day and couldn't believe that Dylan Penn had 20 points because there was never that takeover moment. There wasn't the string of three threes in a row. There wasn't the big dunk. He just got 20 points. So it's very hard right now for me to formulate a true opinion on Dylan Penn. He's very, he's obviously good. He just might not be the takeover guy that I expected him or wanted him to be. But if he's going to get 20 against good teams, then I guess it doesn't really matter. Dylan Penn is a good player. They need him, and they need him to be really good. He just might not be really good in the way that I wanted him to be or that I had expected him to be. And I'm also, I, I do want to say this, and I want this to be heard. It's not easy to come in, especially as a grad transfer. It's a transfer anytime, but especially as a grad transfer. It's not easy to come in here and contribute. The fact that Dylan Penn is contributing, period, is very, very impressive. Right? He's averaging 12 points per game. And while I want him to average 16 a game, and I wanted him to take over games, 12 points a game is 12 points a game. And for a transfer... That's very impressive because I remember when Daniel Giddens came in from Alabama from a better program in the SEC as a, with one year left of eligibility and averaged like two points per game. I remember when Duncan DeMuth came in from the Big 12 in Oklahoma State and could barely get on the floor and now, I think due to injury, isn't even on the team. So it's hard. It's hard to come in and contribute as a transfer. And Dylan Penn is doing it. And whether he gets 12 points a game or 16 points a game, the fact that he is doing that is very, very impressive. It's hard to make an impact. Napa Morrisville, 802-585-3026. Uh, Texter says, he's coming off an injury. I'm not mad that Penn is starting his UVM career off riding shotgun. So meaning, I guess, being the second best player or being alongside somebody. He is coming off an injury. We give him credit for that. He had a broken hand. He missed most of the preseason. Well, actually, he missed the entirety of the preseason in terms of a game perspective. He was back for night one. Um, we're 15 games in now. We are a month and a half removed from opening day. So I don't think the injury is an excuse right now. It was an excuse for the first 
three weeks. I give 100%. Right now, it's not an excuse. As we get into conference play, I would love to see Dylan Penn be a takeover guy. Give me the ball, put it on my back. And maybe he's got that ability and he doesn't want to ruffle feathers because he's a new guy. That, that, that could be the case. I'm not trying to disparage Dylan Penn. I'm actually trying to give Dylan Penn credit that I was expecting one thing. And while he's not doing that, he's still doing very useful things. I just don't quite know how to judge him. He's the be- I think he's the best offensive player on this team, but he doesn't always produce like the best offensive player on this team. I think he's got the ability to take over, but he doesn't always doing it. My question would be why? 15 games in, I should have a better read on this guy, and I just don't have it. And when we get to conference play, when we see January 5th against Bryant at Patrick Jim on national television, I think we'll start to all get a better read on who Dylan Penn is and what exactly we can expect. Mark in Essex, what's strange about Robin Duncan is that uh, he came in with the reputation of being the best scorer of the Duncans. Now, that I don't remember. So I'm not going to go back and have revisionist history. I, I don't remember that. Um, th- That could be the case, but that's not something that I remember. It's very clear now to me that Ernie was the best scorer. Right? Ernie had a smooth jump shot. He was a good passer. He always found the open spots. Ernie is the best. I'm sorry, the best shooter. That's what I meant to say. I don't know if I said that or not. But Ernie was the best scorer, right? Best shooter, good pump fake, got to the open spot. Everett was a good three-point shooter, as I recall. Not as good as Ernie, but a good three-point shooter. Robin is bigger than certainly Ernie. And he certainly attacks the basket in a way that the other Duncans don't or didn't. And he's got a, he plays a different game. Robin Duncan is a phenomenal passer also. A phenomenal passer. He can pass from the top of the key. He can pass out from the block. He's an invaluable player to what they do. An invaluable player to what they do. My final observation, my final question about UVM is this. On Tuesday against Toledo, I'm really disappointed that we didn't see more of Perry Smith Jr., Perry Smith Jr. against Toledo played just five minutes. I said yesterday the biggest problem for this team is not having enough size. Well, Perry Smith Jr. is your size. He is your guy to play down low, and he played just five minutes. I know maybe he's not ready, or you think he wouldn't have played well or whatever, but I wanted to see him out there. I am at the point where I told you this a few a few games ago. The non-league doesn't matter anymore from an NCAA tournament standing, right? Like, You weren't going to do anything in the non-league to take yourself from a 15 seed to a 12 seed. It's not going to happen. So use these non-conference games to not only try to win, but to just develop guys. And Perry Smith was the guy I wanted to see developed, and he barely played. Right? He barely played. This team needs size. They need a presence on the interior, both offensively and defensively. And Perry Smith Jr. should be the guy, and he only played five minutes. I mean, he had eight points in 19 minutes against Dartmouth. That should have been the jump-off point for him. He didn't play as well against Colgate, and then we barely saw him in Toledo. I don't want to see him buried on the bench. 
I want to see him get better and ascend, and I want to see him give UVM the presence they need. I don't know if he's going to get a chance to be that guy, but I want him to get that chance. I wanted him to get that chance. And I hope he plays against Miami. And yeah, he may have some, yeah, well, welcome to the show, kid moments. He might. But I'm hoping that it serves him well because this team is going to need that. They're going to be able to get away with playing five guards and being a jump shot happy team against some of the teams in their league. They are. They're not going to be able to do it against everybody. They're going to need some size. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Speaking of basketball, another gutting loss for my men's league team yesterday in the uh, Essex Junction Parks and Rec League. So uh, last week we were beaten at the buzzer by Mike Trimboli, 102-100. to Yesterday we were beaten at the buzzer the other way where we had two chances to win it. Uh, we lost 108-106. to And uh, we had two, two chances to win it and weren't able to hit. No. I didn't miss the game-winning shots, but I did enough else to hamper us yesterday. I I had 27 yesterday. Okay, 27 is a fair output. I had 27 points. That's good. I also dribbled the ball off my foot like four times. I'm not known as a great ball handler, but I was trying to get down to the post and, you know, I was trying to get down to the post and establish myself. Dribbled it off my foot once. Once I was just kind of lazily dribbling it and, dri- and dribbled it off my foot. Once I... Tried to back a guy down and had to take it. I'm like, what am I? The guy in the the NBA guys in the Space Jam movie that lose their talent from the Monstars? I mean, 27 points was good, but I apparently lost my complete handle from week to week. Ridiculous. And one guy tried to give me the business a little bit. And uh, it's a very respectful league. You know, you call your own fouls, and everybody always respects the call. But I'm not above telling a guy who called the call, like, hey, I respect your call. But it was a garbage call. You can have the ball, but it's a garbage call. So guy goes to the bucket last night, goes left, fires up a wild shot. It's like barely even a shot. He's falling away from the hoop, misses it horribly, and then calls the foul. And I'm like, look, hey, that's not a foul. That's a bad shot that you took, and you're using the foul call as a bailout. He's like, respect the call, bro. Respect the call. I'm like, I will respect the call, but that's not a foul. Just so you know, you called that so you could get bailed out. And how do I know that? Because I've done that too. All right? I'm tall and thin. I've had shots. I've taken bad shots or shots that were going to get blocked. I've altered them, and I've called a foul just to make myself look better. I've done it, pal. Been there, done that. I know what a foul is, and I know what a foul isn't. And I know when you've called a foul to make yourself look better. And that's exactly what that was. So then he kind of had it out for me all game long. And he took the ball from me twice. They were both fouls, but I didn't call them. You're supposed to call the foul. You're supposed to tell me, hey, I slapped the hell out of you. It's your ball up top. I'm like, look, you want to play this game? You don't like that I called the foul? You, you don't like that I called you out. Now you want to slap me all around, take the ball. Fine, pal. You have the ball. I'll continue to come down and shoot threes and hit them. And I had 27. So there you go. It's a Brady Farkas show on DEV. Texter says, Brady, you've been scoring serious points. What is your basketball history? Um, say this. I'm scoring serious points because the league is designed to score serious points. Like I, I will tell you my basketball history, but... Before you go thinking I'm better than I am, the league is designed to score points. It is 
30, it's 60 minutes, two 30 minute halves. So one, it's a long game, right? It's a long game. An NBA game is 48 minutes. Now stop it. You know, the times are stopped, but we're playing longer than NBA game. And the clock is running clock, but you know, still 60 minutes, 60 minutes total. You know, you're playing a lot of that 60 minutes. So there's also only eight players on a roster. So you're getting to play a lot. And yesterday we only had seven because some guy was out for the holidays, right? So you're not sitting very much. You're playing a bunch. The league is designed, you know, by the length of time to score points. And look, you know it as well as I do. We're we're aging men's players now. There are some guys that are younger in their 20s. There's also some guys that are in their 50s. Some guys aren't going to be as good a shape. Some guys are going to be coming off an injury. Some guys aren't going to go that hard. Some guys aren't going to be capable of guarding you. And you're going to end up in a mismatch. The league is designed for points. Um, but thank you, Mark, for that. Like, yeah, I scored, I scored 14 the first week, 30 the second week, 27 last week, or 27 yesterday. And then I had a couple games, you know, in the summer and the fall. I went for 40 a couple times, 25, 30 a couple times. Like, I have scored. As for my basketball history, well, look, I was a three-year varsity player at a very big high school in New York, right? Like, my high school had 3,000 kids in it. So to be on the varsity team meant you were pretty good. To be a three-year player on the varsity team was pretty good. But actually, I was worse as a senior than a sophomore. I started as a sophomore on the varsity team, barely played as a senior. How did that happen? Well... I, went, I just told you, I went to such a big high school. We had a new coach. Guy, you know, made basketball basically a year-round sport, and that's fine. It was better for the program. It was worse for me. I was playing baseball all year. You know, I was playing baseball all spring. I was playing baseball all summer. I played baseball all fall. You used to be able to just pick up the basketball come October and be good. By the time I was a senior, you could no longer do that. And while I made myself available at summer things, I just guys that I was way better than then passed me. So I didn't play in college or anything. I played intramurals. I played, you know, for fun at the at the college gym, et cetera. And now I'm better in men's leagues. I'm truly a better men's leagues player, men's league player than I was a high school player because I I, I was very robotic. I was always thinking. My coach made me nervous. You know, okay, the play is this. I'm gonna run this play. I'm gonna go here. I'm gonna go there. And I didn't play with a great feel for the game. Men's league where it's kind of helter-skelter and it's just kind of run up and down, I'm much better in those regards. I'm much better under those circumstances. So a structured lead, you know, a structured where we're running plays, I'm not as good at feeling out, okay, where's this, Where's the double coming from? When should I slip the screen versus when should I flare out? Get me to the three-point line, get me the ball, and let me chuck it up. That's what I want to do. That's another reason why. I'm, uh, that's another reason why I can score in this league because a lot of people are playing just like me. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. A former Patriot, a former Patriot legend calls out Mac Jones. Why? I'll tell you next on DEV. Make your opinion heard by texting onto the Brady Farkas Show at 802-585-3026. This is Freddie Coleman of ESPN, and you're listening to Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV and WDEVradio.com.
Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV. Thank you very much, Freddie. And Freddie, again, wore the Brady Farkas Show sweatshirt yesterday on DEV. Does anybody want the Brady Farkas Show sweatshirt? Because I actually had people, like, ask me for them. And I don't have any right now. I'm just curious, like, is that something people are interested in? Because if people want to buy them, like, I'll, I'll make a, like, I'll get a couple more made. I don't think I'm ever going to sell, like, a hundred of these things in one shop. But if somebody really wants one... And, you know, I'd be willing to, to get another run of them made. And uh, Freddie Ward on national TV, and that was very, very cool. I was actually shocked. Some people were like, where do I get one? Where do I get one? I'm like, I don't know. Just ask me if I want to make more of them. So, uh, you know, let me know. 802-585-3026. Do you, remember, do you remember this? After the Patriots beat the Cardinals on Monday Night Football, do you remember when I told you that Mac Jones needed to stop with the on-field tantrums? Do you remember when the following day on Tuesday, Bob Sosie, voice of the Patriots, said that Mac Jones needed to be careful about his on-field demeanor or he risked losing in the court of public opinion? Do you remember when I said that Mac needed to not make those outbursts a habit and that I said I had his back after the Buffalo game with that outburst? I was not okay with it happening in the Arizona game less than, or, you know, just a, a week later. Well, it turns out one former Patriot agrees with me about Mac's behavior, and that's Patriots Hall of Famer Vince Wilfork. You know, you're the leader of the team, you're a quarterback, so you can't be frustrated every single week, every single play. I don't care if you're getting a play call in late or whatever it may be. At the end of the day, you have to you have to show some voice because you operate the ship. You're the head of the ship when you're out there, and then you've got the teammates looking at you every week and every play and every other play is this, that, and other. Hey, Control what you can control, you know? That's all you can do. Yep. That's what I was talking about. If you go unhinged one time and pick your spot really well, then I think people are going to look at you like, you know what? Okay. Like, that's a good thing. Huh? We like to fire from Mac. We like, you know, we like this. He's speaking truth to our frustration. If Mac acts out one time, I think people are on his side. When you start acting out multiple times, when you look frustrated multiple times, when you're making hysteronics. I mean, look, the other day against uh, the Raiders in the goal-to-go situation, Max frustrated with his team again. So he's yelling at coaches. He's waving off coaches. He's getting on his guys. You start doing that more than once, and players are going to be looking at you sideways, and that's exactly what Vince Wilfork is saying. When you are the quarterback, you are the CEO of the franchise. And when you are the CEO, I'm sorry, the rules are just different. You have to appear together. You cannot appear disheveled. The wide receiver, he can be a diva more often. The defensive back, he can be the diva more often. The linebacker, he can be really, really emotional. The quarterback has to be grounded, has to be centered. And that is just a fact. I will give you the one-off outburst. When you make it a habit, you're going to start to rub people the wrong way. And I think Vince Wilfork is right. It grows tiresome. And I think other veterans, especially, and other leaders on the team start to eventually look down upon it. And what I see from... Mac Jones said he did say something interesting about all of this. He talked about kind of his emotions. I think um, that's a big part of the game is playing with passion and emotion. I think the best players on every team do that. Um, 
and yeah, you can't let it affect your next play. That's the biggest thing, um, which it hasn't. And it's all about fixing the, the things that pop up in a game, right? So um, sometimes when they're reoccurring, we just want to fix them and, and move on to the next play. So that's something that definitely, you know, that's who I am, and that's how I've always been. I don't know about you, but I get the sense that Mac Jones is a guy who right now is trying to find out who he is as a leader. I think Mac Jones is, I, w- I don't want to say lost, I think he's searching. I think he's on a quest to figure out what kind of leader he is and what kind of leader he should be. That's the sense that I get. Now, I'm not making excuses for him, but Mac Jones is a really young guy. And now he's thrust into this really big position. And when you go from college student athlete to CEO of a franchise to outward most most outward facing member of a franchise, that's a big transition. And when you're going from college student athlete to most important guy on the roster, that's a lot of responsibility to bear. And it has swallowed up some people before, right? Johnny Manziel couldn't handle it. Jeff George couldn't handle it. Mac Jones, I think, is trying to learn, okay, who am I? Who should I be? Who do I need to be? And when do I need to act in a certain way? It feels like Mac is trying a bunch of different leadership strategies all year, right? I saw him back at the Pro Bowl even last February. He was very, very fun, Mac. Saw him earlier this offseason. He organized everybody together. Got the throwing sessions. He's making dancing videos. I think he was smoking a cigar with Devontae Parker, if I'm remembering correctly. I think Mac has tried to be the fun guy who is one of the guys. I've seen him be go-with-the-flow guy. I've seen him be overly optimistic guy. He's had the coaches back publicly, even when you think he probably shouldn't have. So he's been the yes man. He's been the corporate guy. He's been the fun guy. And now I think he's trying to be the emotional guy. He sees at the end of the year here his team is slipping. He sees that their playoff chances are slipping. I think he's just trying to figure out who he is as a leader. And I can't say that I blame him for it. I don't think at 23, 24, 25, I would have been ready to be an NFL quarterback either. This is part of the battle, right? Learning the coverages and learning the routes and learning the personnel and learning the fields – That is all part of the transition to being a quarterback in the NFL, but it's also part of the transition learning how you should act and when you should act that way and what guys will respond to. Mac Jones last year learned how to win. This year he's learning how to lose. He's learning through success. He's learning through failure, and you're learning how to respond to all of these situations that you aren't used to. When I see Mac Jones and when I hear Mac Jones, I've heard so many different things that I just feel like I see a guy who is searching, right? Drew Brees was consistent. Tom Brady was cons- is consistent. Peyton Manning was consistent. Like him or not, Russell Wilson is consistent. I think that consistency matters. And I feel like Mac has been a bit inconsistent through this season, because I just don't think he really knows exactly who he is. And let, let me play the very beginning of this clip again. I think um, that's a big part of the game is playing with passion and emotion. I think the best players on every team do that. 
I think the best players on every team do that. It feels like he's trying to take from a bunch of different leadership strategies. It feels like he's trying to emulate guys and figuring out how do I blend all of that into who I am. That's that's what I get. And I can't say I blame him. Young guy, big position, big responsibility, learning on the fly. And I think Mac's trying to piece it together. I tell you what, if I'm Devin McCourty and I'm Matthew Slater, guys who do know how to lead and have figured out who they are, I'd continue to sit down with Mac. I'd continue to talk with him about, and I'd explain to him, be yourself, but learn your teammates and learn what guys respond to and learn what guys don't respond to and ask what they want and ask what they need and take all those individual answers into forming kind of who you are from a team perspective. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Patriots are taking on the Bengals coming up on Saturday. Our coverage is going to begin at 10 a.m. It is a 1 p.m. kickoff. Bengals receiver Jamar Chase talked about preparing for a Belichick special. Coming into the game, the biggest thing that I'm doing is watching the defense just to see what looks I'm getting. Because, you know, every team is going to play differently. And I've been hearing a lot about this Belichick playing, you know, great receivers and how he has to double people. So it'll be a good test for me to see where I'm at and, you know, overcome everything, you know, that's happening right now. I'll be curious how the Patriots can handle Jamar Chase. I mean, Justin Jefferson had a very good game against the Patriots. I'm thinking about top receivers the Patriots have faced here. Stephon Diggs has eaten him up this year. Uh, Jefferson ate him up. Devontae Adams did not do a lot against them. So we'll see what uh, we'll see what uh, happens here with Chase. Chase and Burrow, certainly special. T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, it's a very good offense for Cincinnati and it is at least an opportunistic defense for the Bengals. Patriots are going to be banged up going into this one. I mean, they're out Joe Cardona, their long snapper. That's a big loss on special teams. They're out Jalen Mills, one of their top defensive backs, so that's no good. And Devontae Parker is out as well. So uh, the Pats are going to be shorthanded. And we talk about these last three games being important to Mac Jones and to Bill Belichick. You're off to a suboptimal start here on a short week in which you're coming back from a cross-country flight. So, again, our coverage, though, on Saturday is 10 a.m., and it is a 1 p.m. kickoff. Patriots are 7-7. Seven and seven. They win all three games. They're in the playoffs. That's a fact. They win all three games in the playoffs. Got to get one first, though. All right, earlier in the show, we spoke to ESPN MLB insider Buster Olney. Buster, in agreement with me, Steve Cohen, awful for the Red Sox when it comes to Rafael Devers. We'll tell you why. That's next on Deep. Want Brady to hear your opinion on the sports stories of the day? Text in at 802-585-3026. This is Field Yates of ESPN, and you're listening to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV Radio and the WDEV app. Thank you very much, Field. Brady Farkas Show back at it for another segment here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We spoke with Buster Olney earlier today. The full interview is already up on our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And Buster agreed with me. The Mets spending is really, really bad for the Red Sox when it comes to Rafael Devers. There's a few ways this can possibly play out, and none of it is good for the Boston Red Sox. So basically, Steve Cohen is out here writing blank checks to people, right? He's paying everybody. So any player who's going to be a high-value target in free agency 
knows that the big money is out there, right? They know the big money is out there. Steve Cohen can overpay for any star that he wants. So right at the right off the bat, at the very least, if I'm Devers, I'm looking at like, hey, I want to get to the market because I want to give that guy a chance to go after me. Right? I want to give that guy a chance to go after me. So that alone makes it bad news for the Red Sox. If you want the Red Sox to offer Rafael Devers an extension right now, if I'm Devers, I'm looking like you better put a whole lot of zeros on it. Otherwise, I want to see what Mr. Cohen's got to say first. So that, bad news. Then you operate under the assumption like, hey, the Mets could just go after Devers himself then. right? They could go after Devers. He wants to see what Cohen's got to say. Cohen says, sure, come on over. You play first in DH, we'll have Correa, you and Lindor, and we'll go win the World Series. So the Mets are now a real threat because they can and are willing to pay more than you. So that's a real threat. There's also the Otani factor. Shohei Otani is going to get massive dollars in free agency. $400 million, $450, I don't know. He's going to get massive dollars in free agency. And something's going to happen there that's going to affect the Red Sox. The Mets, they're going to go after Otani. And let's just say the Mets get Otani. Well, if they get Otani and they pay him $450 million, well, the price just went up on everybody else because now we, you know, top of the market's here. Well, what's number two? Got to get pretty close to that. And if the Mets get Otani, then as Buster told us, well, the Dodgers who are trying to get Otani they then pivot to number two, and Devers could be number two for them. And they'll pay $410 million. And now you won't be able to match that. Or maybe the Dodgers get Otani, and the Mets pivot to choice number two, who is Devers. None of this is good. Absolutely none of this is good. Tex says, Otani will not sign for anything less than $500 million. I As long as he stays healthy this year, I, I would expect that to be the case also, right? Otani, as a pitcher, as a hitter, as an international superstar, is almost invaluable. As long as he stays healthy this year and performs, I could easily see him signing for $500 million. So if he signs for $500 million, the Devers gets, what, 430 440 And the price is way up on the Red Sox? Or... The Mets get Devers because the Dodgers got Otani, or the Dodgers get Devers because the Mets got Otani. The, the Red Sox here are in a really bad position. And Buster's right. If you want Rafael Devers to re-sign with the Red Sox, you basically need to offer him a blank check right now. If I'm Devers and I want to buy him out of listening to Steve Cohen's offers or the Dodgers' future offers, I'm talking seriously. You're gonna you're gonna be you're going to be aghast at these numbers, but I'm talking 14 years and $400 million right off the bat. And if he says no, then I'm talking 14 years for 415 And if he says no to that, I'm talking four years for 430 14 years for 430 I mean, these are the numbers you need to put out there to get Devers to not listen to Steve Cohen and not test the market. The Red Sox are in a really bad place. We've got Buster's 
audio on this. It's very long, so I'm not going to play all of it. But Buster agreed, none of this is good. It's terrible news for the Red Sox, uh, especially with their their current you know modus operandi and their current you know order of business and how they're connecting uh, or how they're conducting business. Um, and look, and here's the other factor that sort of hasn't got as much attention in a week in which the Mets are pushing their payroll close to $400 million. The Los Angeles Dodgers clearly are resetting their payroll for a big run next winter at Shohei Otani. Um, that's the perception of other teams. You know, they've given one-year deals to guys like J.D. Martinez. Uh, and, you know, the, the feeling is, is that next winter – when Otani becomes a free agent, assuming he becomes a free agent, the Dodgers are going to take a huge run at him. Well, guess what? What happens if Otani decides, you know what, I want to take the Mets' money? Yeah, if Otani wants to take the Mets' money, then the Dodgers pivot to Devers. And the Red Sox are left holding the bag again. I, it's why I've said it. You either offer Rafael Devers that 14 years, $400 million deal right now, or you better be prepared to trade him. And I would trade him now if you're not going to do it. You can wait until the deadline, but you better be prepared to trade him and get something for him. And then you could go try to make your run out of it free agency like everybody else if you want to, but you better be prepared to trade him. Because if you're not going to offer him 14 for 440, you're going to have to trade him. Whether you trade him now or in July, he's not going to be here through the end of the season. He's not going to be here through the end of the season. The other thing that Buster said that was interesting. So I asked Buster about um, the Justin Turner deal, right? The Red Sox signed Justin Turner earlier this week, uh, this weekend. And I actually like that deal, right? Two-year deal. I think he adequately replaces J.D. Martinez. Buster made an interesting point that he thinks, yes, the deal for Turner and Kenley Jansen and some of the relievers make the Red Sox better, but also... Their margin for error with their roster compared to that of the Yankees with Rodon now and Judge resigned, or the Blue Jays or the Rays or the Orioles with their improving roster, there's a fair chance we're going to see the Red Sox go into sell mode. And I think that was part of the reason why they want these one- and two-year deals. I think Buster's absolutely right. What have I told you for weeks now? The Red Sox are looking now at deals that provide two things. One is value. Two is flexibility. One is value. Two is flexibility. The Red Sox, with Justin Turner, with Kenley Jansen, with Chris Martin, they have options. If all goes well for the Red Sox and they're in it, they've just got good players, right? So there's good players there that will provide value. If things go sideways for the Red Sox, they have deals that are flexible enough to be moved in trades. Kenley Jansen is on a two-year $34 million deal. If the Red Sox are out of it and he's playing well, then... That's a that's a a contract you can move. Justin Turner's got a two year deal worth. It's in the thirties, thirty eight. That seems a little high, but it's a two year deal. It's a contract that can be moved if Turner's playing well. Same with Rodriguez. Same with Martin. Kike Hernandez is a one year deal that can be moved. The Red Sox are looking for good players. Yes, they want to win. Yes. But if it doesn't go well, they have the flexibility that they can move off, guys. I think Buster's right about that. Uh, texter sends me a text that they must be doing voice texting because it makes absolutely 
Oh, uh, said Turner signed for two years in $22 million. Okay, I thought it was in the 30s. My mistake. So that's a flexible contract that can be moved also. And that's an easy contract to move. Um, Red Sox, yeah, value and flexibility. That's what they're looking for. Kike can be moved. Paxton can be moved. Uh, Pavetta can be moved. Verdugo can be moved. I mean, if this thing goes really bad for the Red Sox, they can execute a full. They can execute a full sell-off because they have guys on such limited deals here. The only guys they can't really move are Sale, uh, Yoshida, who's got the five-year deal now, and then they're not going to move Bayo and Costas, right? Like they, those guys are guys they aren't going to want to move, but they can move almost everybody except for Yoshida and for. Uh, and for sale. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Brady Farkas show. Tomorrow, I need you all to make me a promise. Tomorrow is the day before Christmas Eve. It's December 23rd. I need you to promise to be with me tomorrow. I'm coming in. I'm going to be here through the bad weather. I got to drive home in the bad weather. If I'm going to do all that, I got to know that you're riding with me tomorrow. The true, the real ones out there, They'll ride with us tomorrow, even though we're on the eve of Christmas Eve. We're still going to talk Patriots and Bengals. Phil Perry from NBC Sports Boston is going to stop by. It's going to be a great show as we get you ready here for the holiday. And by the way, it's going to be my final show for a week plus because I'm off all next week. That's right. No, there won't be any me next week. I think Nick Mumley is going to do a couple of days next week, but not every day. So if you like the Brady Farkas show and value Sports talk in general, get your fix tomorrow. We'll be on all 90 minutes until 7 o'clock, and then we'll all try to navigate the bad weather home together here. So Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. Have a great night, everybody. Go download the podcast from the podcast channel. This is DEV. See you tomorrow.